What Came Next is brought to you by BetterHelp. What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Sarah Edmondson is an actor, author, podcaster, victim advocate, and mother from Vancouver. She found her passion for the performing arts at a young age and has seen great success in front of the camera. Her roles in front of them have drastically shifted over the last decade, though. She now uses the spotlight from her book, podcast, and HBO's The Vow to share her experiences in Nexium. Sarah was truly tested to her limits by her journey in the multi-level marketing sex cult. And I am so thankful she's here with us today to talk about how she's turned what came next for her into education for the masses. I am a mom of two, three-year-old and an eight-year-old. We just moved to Atlanta. I've been living in Vancouver most of my life, except for university, and a year in Israel when I was 18. I went to a camp that was part of Habonim Drawer, which was actually a little bit culty, <laughs> now that I know what I know. So it was like 10 months total. We worked the land, we traveled. It was an experience. I love yoga and green juice, and I'm kind of a health nut. I'm an actor. I have been for over 20 years now in film and television, theater and voiceover. I kind of don't do much of that anymore. I'm mostly focused on educating people about cults and course of control ever since my experience in a cult where I met my fabulous and handsome husband, Anthony. We call him Nippy. Those are the silver linings as my husband and my kids from my foray in Nexium. My career, if I look back on it, it's got these sort of weird holes in it. I started in the 90s in Montreal at a time when working in film and television was mostly part of the YTV, which is for our American friends listening, kind of the Nickelodeon of Canada. I had these great roles in things like Are You Afraid of the Dark, Student Bodies, Big Wolf on Campus. It gave me a really solid foundation to be like, I'm an actor now. Then I moved to Vancouver at a time when there was a big writer's strike in 2001. Production got put on hold. Technically, from that point on, I was a working actor, but nothing really meaningful. And that was around the time that I got caught up in Nexium. I think I was feeling the reality of, well, being an actor kind of sucks. <laughs> Unless your trajectory is something serious or a recurring role right away, it lacks purpose, or at least for me, it felt like it lacked meaning, which left me, some might say, vulnerable. I was in a place where I was wanting more community and feeling like I wanted something a little bit deeper in my life other than doing vampire shows. It was around that time that I was also doing a lot of personal development and trying to better myself as a person. My mom's a therapist. My dad's a counselor. I've been in that space for a long time. So when I was introduced to this concept of a personal development workshop that would help me with my career and find all the things I was looking for, community, purpose, meaning, all that stuff, it's actually one of the reasons why I joined. Truthfully, it helped my career at the beginning, and it helped me with some of the things I struggled with, including audition nerves and being confident in general, which is key for any actor. 
It helped me to book a role that I was very proud of, a totally random independent film called Gun to the Head, which ended up at Toronto Film Festival. Also a big win for any actor aspiring to be on the indie scene. Around that time, I was pursuing voiceover. I use this in air quotes, use the tools of the curriculum of Nexium to <laughs> break into that world. If there are listeners who've read or watched anything about Nexium, it's very obvious now what was going on. But back then, not knowing what I know now, it wasn't as obvious. It was a five-day personal development training that promised a number of things, including reaching your goals, self-fulfillment, self-awareness, overcoming your limiting beliefs, all things that I believed were possible. I go into more detail about this in my book because it's important for people to understand. I had many red flags right from the beginning, but I was also there with a certain amount of trust for Mark, who had referred me to the program, who said, it's going to be weird. You're going to feel uncomfortable. Stick it out. Stick it out. Stick it out. Also, the trainers were brilliant at saying things like, you're here, you've spent good money, like over $2,000. You're going to have what we call the urge to bolt. And we encourage you to override that feeling because you're just sitting in a room. There's nothing bad happening. Basically, what they were doing is asking us to override our gut instinct. My gut instinct told me to leave many, many times. I knew there was no refunds. I trusted Mark. I did trust them saying, I'm going to feel uncomfortable and that's normal and it's okay. Not knowing that it's possible to indoctrinate people into a new belief system in three days if that person is open, which I was. I joined Nexium in 2005. Like I mentioned, I was looking for a number of different things as an actor, but also in my relationship at the time, it needed work. I knew that I wasn't satisfied in my life in a number of different areas. So when I met Mark Vicente at a film festival, he said, well, if you like my film called What the Bleep, you'd love this workshop that I just took. And he was right. That kind of thing was totally up my alley at that time. I thought, this is amazing. There's nothing like this in Vancouver. I need to bring it to Canada. Long story short, that became my goal for the next four years. And four years later, I did open a center in Vancouver and I brought the quote, technology or the tools to this little community that I'd built, Mark included. He became my business partner. The company grew. There were new curriculums that were introduced over the years, an acting program, an ethics program, fitness program, all sorts of things that I dabbled in. I became a coach and then a senior coach. It became my career and overtook my acting goals. I was being pulled to make a decision between being a coach and going up what they called the stripe path, kind of like a martial arts system of belts, or in this case, sashes started with white student, yellow coach, orange proctor, green senior proctor. And there was one blue counselor and two purple senior counselors. I ended up choosing the group. So my career fizzled out in many ways. 11 years later, I was pulling away, not feeling as fulfilled. The tools had lost their luster. In retrospect, a lot of what I was going for was to relive those first five days, which had a lot of ahas and what we called integrations, where you recognize something about yourself. You're different from that point on. I was always chasing the dragon from that first five day, and I never had that again. I started to realize that, and I think that the company realized that as well. I say company because that's what we thought it was. Not a cult at the time, obviously. After I had my first child in 2014, they promoted me and they gave me a big raise in terms of the stripe path. I was part of the field trainer group. It was a green sash. I attend a lot of high ranking meetings, but the real inner circle was a different group. That being said, within green, there was stripes. And so I was probably the lowest level of a green. There were higher ranking stripes. It goes up to four stripes per sash. The two purple sashes had actually passed away and the blue was retired. <laughs> So being a green sash was sort of the highest rank other than Keith and Nancy, which was something I'd been trying to get to for years and felt like it was totally out of reach. 
So I was hooked again. I was motivated. When that started to wear off a few years later in 2017, I was invited to DOS, which is supposed to be a women's only group for women by women that were going to help each other to go to the next level and whatever they were working on in their lives. They called it like a, it sounds so cheesy now, but a badass bitch boot camp. I was invited by my best friend, the president of Nexium, Lauren Salzman. She pitched it to me in a way that felt weird, but I also trusted her. She'd been the maid of honor at my wedding. She was the godmother to my child. I trusted her and they hooked me again. She had also told me there was going to be an initiation ceremony where I'd get a small tattoo with all of my sisters because it was supposed to be like a sorority. In this ceremony where I was supposed to be tattooed, it turned out actually to be a brand. The main nugget that really woke me up is that the symbol I was told that I got at the time was not a symbol for the elements, but it was a monogram of Keith Raniere's initials and it was on my body, on my pelvis. That sent me into rage that I've never known in any other capacity. I'm kind of encapsulating this into a little chunk for anyone who might not know the story. Lots of things happened in between from finding out about the group to getting out of the group. But the long and short of it is that I started to recognize that it was not as it had been sold to me. I finally had an open and honest conversation with Mark Vicente, who had brought me in. We had a conversation where he shared what he knew about what was going on, and I shared what I knew. And together, we were able to put together the fact that Keith, the leader of the company, was not who he said he was. He was a con man. And this women's group was basically set up for him to procure naked photos to get collateral the point is we woke up, we figured out what was going on to a degree, enough to get the New York Times to write an article about it. I look at how I got out and how there's a handful of women that are still loyal to Keith and haven't left yet, believe it or not, even despite all this evidence. I think part of it is that I had a very supportive family to go back to. And for me to admit publicly, hey, I was wrong. I was backing the wrong horse. I was vouching for this guy that turned out to be not only the opposite of what he preached to be, but diabolically evil and pure darkness. I had to eat my humble pie, or Nippy calls it the shit sandwich, and admit that. And that was a very, very difficult thing to do. But I also think part of what gave me that strength is that even though from the outside and by all accounts, I was a full devotee, I always had my foot in reality. I never moved to Albany. I never became part of Keith's inner, inner circle. I actually never lived in the US when I was in Nexium. I always lived in Canada. I would attend trainings. The longest I ever spent there was maybe six weeks for one training. Otherwise, I lived in Vancouver and we had a crash pad. It was a home that we rented out to other students when we weren't using it. I wasn't part of his harem of spiritual wives. I interfaced, which is a Nexium work. He liked to throw in all this like computer jargon. I interfaced with reality outside of the bubble of Nexium. So that was part of what gave me strength. Also, when Mark and I spoke and we had those initial conversations, he helped me see and vice versa what was actually going on. My anger towards the leadership for lying to us for so long fueled me in many ways for my strength to be vocal and be public, not just to leave. And that was an option for like a minute. Nippy and I were like, we have to get out of here. We'd seen other people leave before and we knew what happened to them when they left. They would become victims of smear campaigns from the inside and terrible things would be said about them. Keith and Claire would send their legal team after those people and sue them, drag them through the mud and just drain them of their resources. 
we've seen their playbook. I knew it was going to happen to us if we left. So at first it was just like, let's just leave quietly. There's lots of documentation of that where I was like, I'm just going to focus on my family. I was trying that route at the beginning, but eventually two things happened. One is that I found out that more and more women, including 90% of my female staff in Vancouver had already been recruited into the women's group and given way worse collateral than I did in terms of very intimate photos, close-up pictures of their private parts, sexy videos, things that if they got out to the world would be devastating for those people. As I warned people and shared that I was leaving, the more that I found out other women were or had already been recruited, the angrier I got. I knew that I had to expose him and the other people around him for this massive deception. Also to free the other women who I knew were in a similar situation. And as I found out more and more, way worse than I was ever in, I knew that this thing had to be exposed, especially because I'd been a recruiter for so long and I'd been so loud about how great Nexium was that I knew I had to be as equally as loud on the other side. I knew that I had to make sure that nobody ever enrolled again and that the company would fall apart. Between June and October, Nippy and I spent every waking minute, except when we were parenting, talking on the phone, telling people what was going on, showing them evidence, showing my brand because some people didn't believe it. And then some people would see the brand and be like, well, didn't you say yes to that? Like, do you think I would say yes to having Keith Ranieri's initials on my body? I had to put myself out there first with the community and then it was to the world. The strength to do that really came from all those things. It was like multiple roots of strength. One was the strength of my anger. Two was the strength of fixing the fact that I'd been an advocate for this douchebag for so many years. And now I had to like shout from the rooftop, this is a call. These people are bad. But just also this burning feeling in my stomach that I had to fix things. I couldn't just leave because then it would keep going. I had to make it right. And for me to make it right meant to destroy the company. We were waking up at the end of May. We were publicly out by June. We were trying to do it quietly, but then it became obvious through a series of things. Somebody called to get more information, ended up that she was recording me because she was already in DOS and she'd been sent to spy on me. As soon as she had that recording of me being like, don't move to Albany. Do I need to show you my fucking brand? I thought I was protecting her. Turned out she was already in. From that point on, they knew I was a defector. So between June and October, I was in limbo, just trying to get people out, trying to expose things. There was still another corporate retreat, Vanguard Week, that happened that August. We tried to disrupt that too. We tried to warn the YMCA that hosted that retreat. That was a very stressful time. The article coming out in October was also stressful, but it also vindicated us because now we had proof and we had a team of people that were backing me up. The only downside for me is that there were two other people that were initially interviewed, two other DOS women, one who was branded and one who wasn't branded but had sexual contact with him, that were both verifying my story. One of them changed their minds and the other one, they didn't have room for a second interview. <laughs> so again, it was just me on the front being like, I was branded, which really was wonderful in terms of what happened afterwards, but it was incredibly scary and traumatic to put myself out there in that way to be known as that girl who got branded, unless you ended up reading the book or watching The Vow and then you get more of the story. But there's people in my life to this day who saw the New York Times and that's all they know. And that article is one millionth of the story, as much as I appreciate it. There are people who'd left before me, who'd gone to local law enforcement. The people that went to the FBI and local police with evidence of tax evasion and all sorts of legit criminal activity, those people then got investigated in return. This is something that Nippy and I talk about all the time, that it took women getting branded with Keith's initials for the legal system to act. And listen, I'm very grateful for everything that's happened, and specifically for Moira and her team. I just don't know why it took so long for the allegations to be taken seriously. That's all.
What Came Next is brought to you by BetterHelp. Talk therapy has been one of the most helpful resources I have ever given myself. A safe space to speak with a therapist that's right for me has improved my life in so many ways. I find I have healthier communication overall and can maintain more balance in harder times. Plus, I truly do believe the more tools I gain from mental health professionals, the closer I align with the best version of myself. If you've thought about trying therapy, visit BetterHelp for more information about their services. Their online process is simple and will match you with a licensed therapist who you can switch at any time for no additional fees. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com WCN today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot WCN. This happened in stages. After the New York Times article was on the front page, an incredible team in the Eastern District of New York took it on, got warrants and moved quickly. Keith fled to Mexico and he was arrested there and extradited. I want to say within a couple of weeks of the article coming out, I had a call through my lawyer that the FBI wanted to talk. All of us were blown away by how quickly things moved along. The team moved very fast, had subpoenaed people, got all the information in a way that, I mean, we thought this was going to be the next 10 years of our lives, and it wasn't. So we were unbelievably grateful for that. The trial happened. The only reason I remember this is because I was breastfeeding and I had a newborn. It was in June of 2019. I was originally teed up to testify. I didn't have to testify, and that was a huge relief because I had a newborn. I wasn't at the trial, but what I've heard is horrific. One of the victims had, and this was a surprise to her, the defense showed pictures of the collateral that she'd given, which included close-ups of her vagina, like her vulva. She wasn't expecting that. And imagine being in a room where a group of largely men are looking at that. How is that even allowed? Every time this is in the news, for me, it's a re-traumatization. That's why doing our podcast in our own terms is the goal is for it to be the opposite of that. But when you don't have control, like in the case of that particular victim, I'm not going to mention her name. I just found that just absolutely disgusting. I don't know if there's really enough victim support. I know that there was other people who had to testify that found it really difficult. I spent, I think, a day and a half or two days with Mara and her team sharing what I know. Basically handed over my entire computer and my phone. I gave them folders with all of the text messages I thought would be helpful. I found that cathartic to lay it all out there, especially after 12 years of one of the mission point statements is you can't speak of your experience outside of the community. He got 120 years in prison and five years probation. So my involvement in Nexium, I went from being a devoted loyalist, 100% thinking that Nexium would be my life until I died, to being much more skeptical, to being a whistleblower, and now being an advocate for victims of coercive control. When everything fell apart, I went immediately back to acting, started doing Hallmark films and having great supporting roles. It was like I never left. I'm at a crossroads. I'm focused more on the podcast because I get to produce it. It's very satisfying. I don't like to be at the whim of other people's creative decisions. That might be the next stage of my life. My main goal right now is to provide an education and a template for people to see the red flag so they never join in the first place, to get out if they're in it, and to heal if they've been in such a group or such a situation. So that's my life now with my book, podcast, and everything else. 
With that said, I first saw your story on the documentary Nexium, multi-level marketing, and then I recently caught up on season two of The Vow. I commend you so deeply for doing this work. People don't realize just how difficult it is to lay your trauma out there for other people to watch or even sometimes criticize. What was the thing you mentioned, Nexium multi-level marketing? I don't know what that is. I didn't do that, but that sounds cool. I have to check it out. That happens. Sometimes if you do, they repackage it and the same production company can make other things with it. That's happened a couple of times, which is annoying, but can't control it. We're not producers, we're subjects. We knew with The Vow what we'd filmed and we were sort of in touch with some people who were being interviewed for the first time. Whereas season one was following our journey of how we woke up and how we went to the authorities. This was more the aftermath of that after Keith was arrested and the trial. We knew that it was focused on the trial. We knew they had interviews with some of the higher ranks, but they were very cagey about sharing Nancy's involvement. We'd heard it, but it wasn't confirmed. So watching it for the first time in real time with the rest of the world was pretty intense because if you've seen season two, you'll see that there's a huge arc even for Nancy as she starts to wake up and reconcile what she participated in, which is something that we all went through. We just woke up earlier and we still don't know how actually reconciled she is. We know that she's emotional, but we don't know what she's emotional about. I can't speak for her, how much she actually understands. Maybe she is still figuring it out because she's in prison now. But it was an emotional journey for us. We were watching things that we had imagined was happening. We imagined that Nancy was mad at me and mad at Nippy. But that's like watching a movie of like a family member talk shit about you. And same thing with the loyalists, the people who are still loyal to Keith. It's upsetting to see somebody that you cared about who was at your wedding, or in some cases we were at their wedding, and have them basically say that we're lying. How did you feel about the filmmakers sharing your voicemails for Nancy on the docu-series? That actually the filmmakers checked with me, so I knew it was coming. I was actually just surprised that Nancy kept that for so long and thought that she would somehow be vindicated by that. I knew that she had played it for people after I left that message. Keep in mind, I left and never heard from her. But you have to understand that like, I called her my bonus mother, right? She was at my wedding. So I knew that she kept it. But the fact that she kept it for five years and played it for the vow, I didn't mind it. I thought it showed a very important part of the story. I've been meaning to ask the filmmakers why they chose to follow that particular journalist. I just haven't yet. But if anything, I think that it kind of showed my perception anyway, was that she kind of was able to humanize all of these people and got beyond it. Some people have asked me, how do I feel about the people who are so loyal to Keith having so much airtime? Some people were concerned that giving them a platform wasn't a good idea, but I don't think anyone's going to watch that and go, branding women is a good idea and Keith is just misunderstood. I think it's necessary only insofar as to show how indoctrination works and how deep it can be, even in the face of, quote, data, because that was a word used a lot in Axiom. They are systematically, one by one, discrediting every witness, every victim, every woman that was ever come forward against Keith. They're just saying that we're all liars. So they're denying data, denying people's pain and suffering because they're not victims and they chose this. And now we're just having tantrums, which is why these curriculums need to exist because women are weak. It's all based on the indoctrination that they've been in for years. It was a big emotional journey to watch it. And again, it was also very vindicating. I think it's very clear that we're on the right side of history. And yeah, it's been an intense 
fall to have season two drop as we're also settling into a new city, making new friends, and our lives are under a microscope again. So that's a lot. I just moved to Atlanta in August. I've only been here a few months. That's been tough. Part of us coming here was having a fresh start. But when you meet new friends, if you don't talk about your history or your past, I mean, if it wasn't like you could Google it and see the whole information, I may not have been so forthright. I feel like because it's there, if you don't say it, it's weird. And if you do say it, it's weird. So I just decided to be very forthright about it and tell people right out the gate about what had happened. I feel like that's sort of tested to see who can handle it because it is intense and it is dark and abnormal, but it's also my life. So the friends that have stuck through it, they really get it. And I'm really grateful for that. When our story came out on the tales of the Harvey Weinstein story, people were able to see it in a different way that maybe they wouldn't have been able to even 10 years ago. Every now and then someone's like, yeah, but you're a grown ass woman. You chose this. I understand that it looks that way. And I probably would have thought the same thing about people in my position had I not gone through it. I think what's changing now is that people are starting to understand coercive control and how people can be manipulated in a way that they've never understood before. And there's much more empathy and compassion. Still to this day, get messages, sometimes five, 10 messages and people who've just seen The Vow or read the book and they're waking up to their own experience of coercive control either happening in their lives currently or happened in the past and they couldn't make sense of it because they didn't have the words for it. And now they know. Either they were in a cult or in a relationship with an abusive partner, or they were the victim of gaslighting or any sort of narcissistic fuck nugget is what we call it and a little bit culty. But to this day, there's still people who think, yeah, I'm smarter than that. That would never happen to me. Almost every single person who's told me they would never fall victim to such a thing has then further revealed they're already part of something that they don't know about. So part of what makes me so passionate and what brought us together is educating people on what coercive control looks like, helping them see where they may already be involved with it in some way in their life and protecting them from future abuse. Okay, first of all, fuck nugget might be my new favorite term ever. Second of all, do you happen to have another little golden takeaway, if you will, for the listeners? I have two, maybe three nuggets. The first is that I feel like a lot of people like myself get into situations like this because they're seekers. They want more for themselves. I think this is changing a little bit. I see that people are kind of slowing down on things like hustle culture, self-care and self-love are coming back into the conversation in a different way. But I feel like underneath all of that drive to hashtag live your best life is this feeling of not enough. That would be my number one suggestion is for people to figure out how to evolve that without joining a group that could be culty, whether that's in therapy or finding books, going on that journey is important. I just caution your listeners. It's just part of the journey of being a human and learning to love and accept yourself. In that journey, sometimes we look to the outside, we look for leadership, we look for a community, we look for a belief system. And those things can be good, but it's also so ripe for abuse. It's so ripe for people taking advantage of those natural quote unquote vulnerabilities. So the second nugget is if you are in a group like that and you're wondering, is it healthy or is it culty? Maybe there's something that's in your gut is saying isn't right. Trust your gut. And if you're not sure, don't go to the leadership. Don't go to the group. Go outside the group. Do research and ask somebody who's not invested in the success of that group because they will slant the information for their benefit and gaslight you and keep you in the group. My third piece of advice and the main nugget I would say is that with all trauma, not just from course of control or cultic abuse, is that it takes time and it takes effort, but it does get better over time. And I remember somebody telling me when I was just a wreck, I had extreme PTSD, so anxious. 
And somebody said to me, there is light at the end of the tunnel and six months and a year, every now and then you'll look back and go, oh my God, I'm so much better. And that's so true. And I tell that to other people too. When you're in trauma, any kind of trauma you forget, it's not going to stay like that forever. It's just like with anything and it comes in waves. There's waves of intensity and emotion and challenge. And then there's peace again and the tide flows and ebbs in and out. And I feel like life is like that as well, specifically around healing from trauma. Therapy is definitely the main thing, specifically with a cult specialist, somebody who survived a cult. And I have a couple of those on my website. And then a combination of self-education by reading all the different books that are out there on the subject, listening to podcasts, watching other documentaries. A lot of those things are also on my resource page and finding a new healthy community. That was key in my healing process. Also wrapping things up with my old Nexium community included being able to get together and just speak freely because for so many years we couldn't share how we actually felt about things because it would have been called speaking dishonorably or speaking in a way that was not upholding of the leadership. You weren't able to express yourself and how you actually felt, which is so toxic. Also, I have a whole regimen that I share with others quite loudly on my podcast in terms of Epsom salt baths, spending time in nature, unplugging, doing all the things that are good for anyone who's got any sort of trauma or PTSD. Being open about my trauma overall has helped me with my healing. It's hard to know if I would have healed more or less if I'd not been public because I can't live parallel lives. <laughs> but I feel like the biggest drive for me to be involved in Nexium in the first place was to help people. I don't want to say live their best life because it sounds so cheesy, but that's ultimately what it was. I loved to help people with their goals and to get over their challenges and their traumas. And now I get to actually legitimately help people in a format that has a much bigger reach. It's much more meaningful and it's actually legitimate. And that to me outweighs any personal re-triggering or traumatization. But I think ultimately when I do get triggered, I now have actual tools to work through it quickly. I know what to do. Like after this interview, I will go for a walk and I'll shake it off and I'm not going to sit in the residue that may come up from talking about it. At the beginning, when I had to get into the, like the moment of like what it was like to be branded, for example, that was very, very triggering and put my body in a very unhealthy place. Now I can talk about it from a more removed place. So I think that overall sharing and connecting with other people, even like yourself, our traumas are very different, but we connect through the internet, which is amazing to me. I've met such wonderful people because of my story and that silver lining I never would have imagined would occur because I've been public. Season five of A Little Bit Culty will be launching, and we have some incredible guests lined up for that, including Evan Rachel Wood talking about her experience, also Eckhart Tolle talking about toxic spirituality, and a number of incredible guests, what I will be announcing shortly. We recently signed with the Speakers Bureau so we can do speaking engagements about our experience. Other than that, I'm just going to be settling into Atlanta figuring out how to get around here and do our podcast and book events for SCARD. That's my life. And being a mom, that's probably 90% of my life. Thank you so much for this conversation and for your insight, Sarah. If people want to find you and they want to follow your journey, where should they do so if they feel so inclined? I'm on Instagram at Sarah Edmondson. I'm also on Instagram at a little bit culty. Both of those places you can reach me at. I'm also a collaborator for a very exciting project called the hashtag I Got Out movement. There's resources for survivors, but our goal is to use the hashtag to have people who've gone through similar stories to blow the lid off of the shame that they may feel from being conned or duped. And that's something that I'm also very passionate about. So find us there, igotout.org. 
I'm also on Twitter, but I'm very bad at it. So Instagram is probably better. Again, I really appreciate your time and your openness. Thank you, Sarah. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. On October 17, 2017, the New York Times published an interview with Sarah, which we both referenced above. The piece attempted to expose Nexium for its abuse and deceit. Heath Rainier fled to Mexico shortly after the article's publication. By March 26, 2018, just five months later, Keith Rainier had been captured, returned to the United States, and charged with sex trafficking and forced labor. In the following four months after his arrest, four other people were arrested and charged with racketeering and conspiracy to sex crimes. In March of 2019, they added another charge to Keith's growing list of offenses, child pornography. By June of 2019, several women, including an heiress to the Seagram's alcohol fortune, had pled guilty to aiding and abetting Rainier's crimes. That same month, he was found guilty in the sex trafficking, forced labor, and racketeering cases against him. With sentencing impending, it seemed that the accusations were over until more than 80 people filed a federal civil lawsuit against him and 14 other Nexium associates for operating a coercive community and Ponzi scheme. By October 27, 2020, Keith Rainier was sentenced, although his federal civil case is still pending. According to a Psychology Today article about the basics of cults, people don't join cults. They are actually technically recruited through social influence, Cults often look for people who have situational vulnerabilities, or they increase recruiting during times of mass vulnerability, like a pandemic. According to author and ex-cult member Stephen Hassan, there are four types of cults, religious cults, political cults, psychotherapy and educational cults, and lastly, commercial cults. In other words, cults can exist in almost any institution humans are a part of. In Stephen Hassan's book, Combating Cult Mind Control, he goes on to describe one of the most commonly used methods in cults called thought stopping. Thought stopping can be a valuable technique when used responsibly and therapeutically by a licensed therapist, but it's highly dangerous when cults employ it. It involves blocking unwanted thoughts and replacing them with other notions. Thought stopping is the reason why Sarah reports feeling empowered by Nexium and why the red flags she mentions just look like flags to her at first. Psychiatrist and author Robert J. Lifton created a comprehensive theory about cult indoctrination. In it, he highlights eight methods used as the main mechanisms of control in cults. The SASH system Sarah described is a prime example of at least two of these mechanisms, promoting the Nexium doctrine over person and their demand for purity or perfection. The goal of both and all mechanisms of cult control is to strip the individual of their personal value while simultaneously giving them the illusion of gaining more value within the cult. Another goal is to force their followers to exist primarily in relation to the cult. An estimated six to 10 million people have been involved with cultic groups worldwide although true statistics are hard to pinpoint because of the number of unreported cases. The average cult in existence has no more than a few hundred members, although some have thousands of members, and extreme financial, political, and psychological power. 
The Cult Awareness Network currently possesses a list of over 4,000 groups that they have received inquiries about. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. At the time, I was so weak and angry. I remember everyone walking around talking about classes, school dances, friends, normal high school stuff. The day before, I was at my locker being that person. And now I'm sitting here thinking, my stepmom is fucking murdered. What do I do with that? Thank you, BetterHelp, for sponsoring today's episode. As a reminder, don't forget to use WCN for 10% off your first month of BetterHelp services. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.